Well, if you have your Bibles, go on and be flipping to um, Matthew. We are still working our way through the Beatitudes. Um, not far at all in. Actually, only on the third Beatitude. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 in only one verse, verse 5. Now, some people might say, man, you are like really just going slow. You're going to be in the Beatitudes for some nine weeks just in them. That's okay. Lord's got something for us in it. I'd rather go slow and steady and be really picking apart the Word of God than going super fast and just dancing. Uh, because in the end, when we draw our last breath, there is no more time. We're outside of it. So it's better now to go on and start practicing the slow and steady race. It's not a, it's not a sprint, y'all. It's a marathon. That's what it is. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go on and turn there. If you have a smartphone, a Bible app, or anything like that, you can go on and be flipping there. If not, it will be on the monitors behind me. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So in setting forth on this beatitude, I, I, I really want you to know that this is a quote and runs hand in hand with Psalm chapter 37 in verse 11 where it says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Notice it said that, but the meek, the same thing as Matthew 5, 5 said, shall inherit the land. And the first two beatitudes that we've looked at so far was toward God. These pointed us and, and, and moved us toward God, where this beatitude moves us toward people, the people. Like the first two beatitudes, this one must have been shocking and completely baffling to Jesus' listeners at that time. He, he taught principles that were totally foreign to their thinking. Jesus' audience... They, they knew how to act spiritually proud and spiritually self-sufficient. You have to realize that he had all these high religious leaders around him. That it was all about what they was doing and their spiritual self-sufficiencies. They had believed that the Messiah was coming soon and would commend them for their goodness. See, he, they thought that when Jesus the Messiah was to come, he was going to tell them, I'm so glad you've been doing this, this, and this, and this. But yet he flipped it on them. The Messiah didn't come and do that. And see, all the, and, and all the Jews at this time, they had hoped for a deliverance of some sort and of some means. 
But then at last, they, the Jewish, they wanted, to, they wanted their people, their rightful place in, in the world, a position above all other people because they were chosen by God. They thought they had it up here. They belonged up here. And, and the, everybody else was down here. They was on the low. And the major groups here was you had, A, the Pharisees. They expected the Messiah to come with a great fanfare and a, and a mighty show and overthrow Rome and establish a Jewish state. These were the Pharisees that was there. Then we had the Sadducees that was there, and they had hoped for change through political compromise because they were despised by many of the fellow Jews. And then the Essenes. They stayed to themselves, almost like how the monks would do. When the monks would go off, they was more into the mystic of things. And then the zealots. The zealots I kind of got intrigued with because the zealots, their name says it all. They were the most vocal and active proponents of deliverance. See, they expected the Messiah to come as a powerful military leader who would conquer Rome in the same way Rome conquered them. They wasn't waiting passively for their deliverer. Nope, whenever and however he came, they was ready to do their part. They was ready to go to war. They was just ready. The zealots, they had a zeal to them. And they expected this bloodbath. They wanted a bloodbath. And it was going to be a bloodbath. It just wasn't the bloodbath that they was expecting. See, little did they know, they, they wanted war and casualties and to overthrow things, and they wanted blood shed, and, and these was the zealots, but yet Jesus would shed some blood. But again, it wasn't the blood that they was expecting. So now, no matter what way these groups thought the Messiah was to come, they didn't expect it this way. They didn't expect him to come humbly and meekly. They just didn't. This ideal of a meek Messiah leading meek people was far from their concept. See, they understood military power and, and miracle power. They didn't want to hear about this humbleness and meekness. We have to realize that in the New Testament, it was war. It was war. This is why we must dig into the scriptures and learn this. It, it, it's so much more to, to getting into the word than just hearing it just spewed out of a mouth. We need to know what was going on in the time. What was the context? What was happening? Why? We have to. But see, they could understand compromise but not the power of meekness. See, they was willing to compromise some things, but they just didn't understand the power of meekness. Now, the people would eventually would reject Jesus because he did not fulfill their messianic ex expectations. He even preached against the means in which they had put their hope. See, they had put all their hope in doing it this way and that way and holier than thou and I'm going to fast and I'm going to do this and I'm going to pay my tithes over here and I'm going to do this. It was very legalistic. And Jesus flipped all that. He said, your works is nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. And they first rejected, then they hated, and finally killed him. 
Because instead of approving their religion, he condemned it. Man. Man. And if we were there, we would have too. Just look around today. All you have to do is go outside the walls of the local church. Look around. We would be quick to kill Jesus. Preaching Jesus' way is totally counterculture. It's not what the culture says to do. The culture wants to tell you, no, be this way, this way, this way, and that way. And when you say something about the person in the work of Jesus, they want to cut you off. And many people, if you fast forward, if they was here in 20, 2022 and you took them back to that day on Calvary, they would have been standing there with them shouting, crucifying, crucifying, crucifying. People says, no. We wouldn't dare do that. Yes, because your actions speak louder than your words. It's all through our school systems. Grandparents, when you're praying for your grandbabies, this is what they're up against. Aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters. All, this is what you're up against. It's not cool to preach Jesus. You're not going to win a popularity contest, but you will in the kingdom of heaven where it really counts. That's where it really counts. Not here. It don't matter if you get your uh, face plastered on a poster board or something. It ain't about that. It's about telling people about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King. And see, he couldn't be the Messiah to them. And the final evidence was at his crucifixion. See, the Old Testament had taught that anyone hung from a tree was accursed by God, and they was hanging on to that. They truly was. So as he hung dying, some of the Jewish leaders couldn't help but taunt against his claim to be the Savior and Messiah. Y'all know the text. They was looking at him laughing. Come on down from there. Come on down, king. Come on down. Don't take William's word. Let's look at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 42 and 43. He saved others. This is the leaders at the time. This is the religious folk. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. He didn't need to come down off that tree. And boy, when he dropped that head, some people, they like to watch the movie Passion, and, and when the blood hit the ground, boom, the whole world shook. Imagine how they felt in that time. See, in the early days of the apostolic preaching, the death and resurrection of Christ were the greatest hindrances to belief in the gospel. And it still is today. People get offended by it. They don't like it. Paul showed us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. But if we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles, this was foolish because they knew the body was inherently evil. 
and thought that it would be absurd for the Savior of the world who would allow himself to be killed and then come back in a bodily form. Because the body being corrupted, full of sin, why would this Savior come back? So the Gentiles, it was a, a, a stumbling block to them. It was foolishness. It was foolish talk. It was foolishness. And then the stumbling block to the Jews, it was this way because the idea of a Messiah dying at all, much less on a cross, this was unthinkable. They knew the Old Testament. They knew. They knew the first five books. So it made no sense. How could a Messiah who taught for a few years and accomplished nothing as far as one could see and then was rejected by the religious teachers and be put to death be worth believing in? That's how they looked at this. But friends, his rejection started long before his crucifixion. It just didn't happen on that day on Calvary. We have to understand it. It, it all started back when he began Sermon on the Mount by teaching humility, mourning. The people had, around him had sensed something wrong with this. They wanted the Messiah to be a, a warrior. They wanted him to come in and, and take over. But yet he was a warrior. In a spiritual battle, he was a true warrior, a true king. And that strange preacher could hardly be the deliverer they was looking for. And that would be us today. What do you mean your, your Savior died? I, I, I get in these conversations with people, and that's where uh, Christian apologetics comes into play because apologetics is nothing but you defending your faith. And they'll say, what do you mean you, you, you put your faith and belief in this invisible Savior that, that y'all talk about who's in this Bible? And I'm just looking at them, and I'm like... You have no clue. And my heart breaks for them because they don't realize what they're saying. They don't realize that they're in a delusion. Now, our world tells us that great wars are fought by the proud, not the humble. I mean, you can just flip it on an army commercial. Go to war, be proud, proud of your country. Why can't we be proud to fight for the King of kings and Lord of lords? But see, we don't have to beat our chest. We can win the fight on our knees. And that's where there's real power at. When you're on your knees in communion with God, you are communicating with Him. You're talking to Him. You are lifting Him up. See, they would say, you can't win victories while mourning. And, and you could never conquer Rome with meekness. Sad, but yes, he did. He did. And they missed it. They missed the whole boat while he was in front of them. 
teaching these things. And in spite of all his miracles, people never really believed in him as the Messiah because he failed to act in military power against Rome. Even though he was showing he was fully God in person in the man of Jesus Christ, walking around, healing, laying hands on people, casting out demons, raising the dead, doing all these things, he was showing he was God in the flesh, that he was the Messiah, but yet they still denounced him because they wanted a military presence. They couldn't understand when the lamb was in front of them. They just couldn't get it. They even disregarded God's word in Isaiah, which shows the picture of the Messiah as the suffering servant as well as the conquering Lord. Man, they, they knew this. They had the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah, if you read between chapters 40 through 60, it's all foreshadowing. It's all pointing to it. It's all saying what he's coming to do, that Christ the Messiah would suffer, and that he would be Lord. He would be the Messiah. But they tuned that out. They didn't want to hear that. They just didn't want to. They did not recognize the humble and self-denying Jesus the Christ as the Messiah because they did not see God's predicted suffering servant as the Messiah. They just didn't want to look at it. They wanted the kind of Messiah that they wanted. They didn't want what God laid out in the scriptures for them. So what about us? What about us? See, meekness is necessary for receiving God's word. James chapter 1 and verse 21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. There's that word again, meekness. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. James is telling us there, the implanted word. It's already written on your heart. Receive it with meekness. Then Psalms chapter 25 and verse 9, it says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his ways. See, meekness being opposite of pride. It is a much required characteristic on the part of those who are going to live by the thus, saith the Lord. We must walk in a meekness. Now, now meekness is not being wimpy and, and, and nothing like that. But it's not being prideful neither. You're just being meek about things. It's in its own category. It's not prideful and arrogant. Jesus didn't walk around prideful and arrogant. He didn't have to. He just kind of strolled. I love in one part of the text, and it's, it's not on the monitors, when he healed the, the man with leprosy. And he said, tell you what, go back to the high priest. Give him Moses' offering. Now, to me, reading in that, in my little brain, I'm like, get them, Jesus, because I, I can just see him saying that. Like, don't, don't say nothing to none of them. But now, dude, didn't he went around, he told everybody on his way back, which I probably would, too. Let the Messiah lay hands on me. Woo! I'm telling everybody on my way, skipping, clapping, happy, joyful. 
but Jesus said, be meek. So when the Lord's word challenges our challenges our way, meekness will lead us to yield to the Lord's word. When it challenges you to do things and you yield to it, when you, you, you don't really want to do it, you're like, but Lord, that I, ah. But you just yield and you're like, you're God, I'm not. It's a sign of meekness. And then meekness is necessary for communicating God's message. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, but in your hearts, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That being prepared to make a defense goes back to that defending your faith. But you don't have to do it in such a harsh, harsh way. And I have to sometimes repent of that because it's not that I'm trying to be harsh or ugly. I, I just get so worked up on the inside that sometimes they say, William, you're coming off kind of mean. And I, it's just passion deep within me. But, but, but Jesus says, do it with meekness. You don't have to beat them down. Do it being meek. Then James again says it in James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? But his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See, witnessing to others demands a delicate mixture of both courage and humility. It's that double-edged sword. Sometimes you don't want to do it. Um, but you got to humble yourself and, and do it out of humility. Not to say, look at me and what about you? It's more of, hey, let me tell you about what Christ did for me that could possibly help you. Let me show you some things. And see, it takes courage to communicate the message of the Lord without compromise. But at the same time, it takes humility in order to not come across this arrogant and proud. That'll get you. Because sometimes when people's uh, combating back with you and they're saying, well, your God ain't real, you just want to shake them and say, yes, he is. Yes, he is. You don't know what he's done for me and what he can do for you. And then sometimes we become arrogant about it and we just walk away and say, well, you're just lost. And then we tuck tail and run off when that's really not how we should act at all about it at all see meekness will allow us to be unyielding in our stand yet humble in our presentation as we present the gospel to others knowing that it is only by the grace of God that we have come to know the true faith in the first place it's only by God's grace you've come to saving faith and knowledge in that it's not something you've done on your own God did that for you he has enlightened you. He has uh, what was taken and written on your heart. He has uh, opened up your chest cavity and exposed that to you. That is saving grace right there, folks. That is the grace of God. We can't figure it out on our own minds, but yet God wrote it on our heart before we was even born. The meekness is necessary for ministering to God's people. 
Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Then again, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Paul went on to say this, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See, a spirit of meekness will lead us to restore a fallen brother or sister in a kind, forbearing, forgiving manner. It's hard to forgive someone. Trust me. When you feel so wronged, it's, it's as if the text comes alive to you. And you say, oh, Lord, you're, you're showing me myself within here. It becomes hard, but guess what we got to do? Lay it down. Lay it down. It ain't our place. It's his place. Amen. Let him be God. Yes. We need to stop playing little gods. See, the whole time I've, I've been wrestling in the text here, and God keeps showing me different things. And, and, and it's good to be a pastor that gets to present these things to you because I get to see God's word come alive. And I can honestly say and declare with a decree that God's Word is alive and active and moving today. And you don't got to pick and choose what text. He will unfold it in front of you and it will come open and alive and you will see yourself. And there will be a lot of times that you have to hit your knees and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. It all started back in Ephesians. And it's like, boom, 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 boom. He said, I'm going to show y'all. I'm going to teach you that my word is still there. Still there. And friends, before we go trying to restore brother or sister, we need to always think back to when God restored us. We was wretched and messy one second before he restored you. You know that one millisecond before he restored you, we was wretched and messy. For Paul says we are all sinners, fall short of the glory of God. And pride, though, will always try to creep in. Don't let it bust your witness. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, pride will creep in, and a person can smell it out in a heartbeat. And they will snuff out your witness. It will become null and void. So why inherit the earth? He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, the earth's no good. Well, friends, because after creating man in his own image, God gave domain over the whole earth to man because it was created for good, but because of the fall of Adam, I'm taking you all the way back to the beginning. This is why we shall inherit the earth, because it will fulfill God's promise. See, when there is a new heaven and a new earth, we get to rule and reign. 
God's just fulfilling his promises. That's why that's there. And we as God's children again get that promised inheritance. Everything he promises in the scriptures will come to fulfillment. And one day God will completely reclaim his earthly domain. And those who have become his children through faith in his son will rule and reign with him forever. 